Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Okay, everybody take some rubbers. If you have sex outside of one permanent monogamous, and monogamy does not mean one at a time. That means one partner who has only been with you. You have sex outside of that context, and you will pay. So if I saw you undressed, you would look like a woman to me, totally. Yes? I'm not anti-sex. I'm not anti-gay. In many ways, I'm not even anti-intersex or transsexual. I barely understand those things because that's not real life. Let's face it, sex, sexual identity, and gender are confusing and sometimes taboo topics. As a result, there's a lot of misinformation that pervades our society and often our science. And that becomes a problem when we're creating evidence-based policies. Welcome to episode 54 of Raw Talk. We've called today's episode Sex, Society, and Science. On this episode, we went out of the lab and into the bedroom to discuss topics like sexual education, happy and healthy sex, and of course, science and sex. The research questions we ask and the way we design our studies are influenced by factors like sex and gender. In Canada, the Canadian Institute for Health Research mandates that all researchers applying for funding stipulate exactly how their study design considers sex and gender. It forces us to reflect on our biases and consider how an individual's biology and lived experiences might affect health and disease. We started today's episode off by going into the community and asking people where and how they learned about sex and what misconceptions they had about sex growing up. I actually went to Catholic school up until I was 13, so we don't get too much of an in-depth like sexual education. We had this like religious textbook. It was called Fully Alive, and it literally just said if two people are in love and then they get married, then they make a family and like no detail whatsoever into like safe sex or how it actually worked. So I kind of wish I knew like just the very basic of how sex worked and how women got pregnant. But even when I went into high school, I got like a really brief education. And I remember there was a teacher who had told the class that like, you can only get pregnant during like your fertile stage of your period cycle. And I also didn't really know how periods worked either because I never got proper education on that either. So I thought this meant you can only get pregnant when you have your period. (laughs) Luckily, I wasn't having any sex when I was learning about sex in high school. So thankfully, I didn't get pregnant. But yeah, I just really like was misinformed about everything because no one had actually sat me down and given me a detailed education on safe sex and just how sex worked. I think a common uh, misconception that young boys and girls pick up especially I think it's from uh, porn, is that they only see sex really from the perspective of the man. So I think if you watch a lot of porn videos, you think that, you know, the girl is expected to, you know, maybe go down on the guy, but the guy isn't really expected to do much, or if not anything. I think we learn a bit more as we get older, but uh, at a young age, I think that's really our first initial exposure to that, especially with the way uh, the internet is in our lives now. I feel like I've had to spend most of my adult life unlearning all the harmful wrong things that I 
was either taught or sort of were implicitly or explicitly told to me as like a kid and a teenager. So what were like my main misconceptions? I think one of my biggest misconceptions uh, was orgasms and the idea that they occur simultaneously in a very dramatic movie quality way equally every time you have sex for uh, a man and a woman, which is just not true. And I did more digging on this and I actually found just like there's a gender gap in pay inequality, there's actually an orgasm gap between the genders. And the studies behind this are really crazy. There was one of like 800 college-age students, and they found a 52% orgasm gap. So 37% of women said they usually are always experienced orgasm from sex compared to 91% of men. But the study didn't question like, is this sex a random hookup or is this like with your long-term boyfriend, girlfriend? So there was another study by Armstrong et al. in 2012 that surveyed 15,000 college students around America. And they found that the orgasm gap was worse for hookup sex than for like committed relationship sex. But even when you're in a committed relationship, there's still a gap of 17%. And then if you like look outside of just college age students, you might be like, oh, well, they just don't know what to do yet. They're not experienced. There was a survey of 3,000 single people between 18 and 65 years old. And then they said when they were having sex with a familiar partner, women orgasmed about 63% of the time and men 85% of the time. So you're like, well, maybe it's just that women, biologically, it's harder for them to reach orgasm. You know, it's like more complicated. It takes longer. The equipment is more confusing. But lesbian women have significantly more orgasms than straight women according to the same study by Garcia et al. in 2014, where there's not a difference between gay and straight men. And women who masturbate have more orgasms than when they have sex with a partner. So 39% will always orgasm from masturbation versus like 6% who will always orgasm from partnered sex. So the problem isn't that like it's just harder for women to orgasm. The problem is that when you are having partnered sex, in this case with a man, the priority for the, your orgasm isn't there. So that's something we need to address, just like we need to address the pay gap. Um, I think probably one of the biggest ones was that, like, sex would probably occur, like, in the context of, like, a monogamous relationship only, which, you know, for me has just personally, that's not been the case. But I think growing up, I think that's just how I always saw it portrayed. And I thought that, you know, that was really the only option. Um, and it really wasn't until I was older that I sort of realized that I don't necessarily need to stick to that sort of blueprint and that I could really do whatever it was that I wanted. Yeah, and I think probably one of the other big things is that, you know, sex is really not perfect and pretty as, like, we sort of see in movies and TVs and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's awkward and it's messy and, you know, you can accidentally elbow someone in the face. Like, those things happen. I think, like, my introduction to sex was definitely in school when they were like, okay, we're going to have, like, a health class on sex. But in terms of, like, the details of how things actually worked, I would say, like, my older cousins, when they started talking to me about their sex life, which I was very surprised that they were sexually active because we just never talked about sex in her between her family members. They had just told me, like, how it worked. And I had actually told them, like, oh, I learned in class that you can only get pregnant when you have sex during a period. And they were like, what? No, that is not true at all. Like, do not do that if you don't want to get pregnant. I think when you're young, it's in maybe mid to late elementary school, just through, you know, hearing from other students on the playground or whatever it may be. 
Then for me personally, I know when I was in high school, for my uh, gym teacher, he was actually this very intense German man who he never even cracked a smile. So unfortunately, uh, uh, me and the other 15-year-old boys had the, the misfortune of learning what a uterus was from him. It was definitely uncomfortable. So I went to Catholic school, elementary and high school. They taught us that abstinence was the best answer. They didn't have like condoms or birth control available at the school. In high school, if they did talk about sex, it was always in relation to horrible diseases that you could get, which is important to know about. But it wasn't anything about consent. It wasn't anything about trans identities, barely anything about being gay. At the time, they had evolved to the Catholic catechism being like, we accept people who are gay and love them, but they just can't act on their feelings. So it was a pretty scant education. And so I had to learn from it, literally from reading Greek mythology in school. (laughs) And like, little do they know, like you're reading stories about incest and people turning into a man and then a woman and then back again. And um, hermaphrodite. So you're learning about all these like concepts in the in Greek mythology. I didn't learn what oral was for a woman until grade ten. Like I didn't know that was a thing until grade ten. As a queer guy and queer people in general, we don't really get sex ed. You know, it really was sort of picking bits and pieces from pop culture and movies and books and television just sort of like picking up on those little things and sort of like trial and error, right? Yeah, so I mean, it was sort of like a very messy experience, I guess, because there was no, there was no book for me to read to learn how to do it. Um, Whereas, you know, that was different from my peers. And I think I learned a lot of it from when I got older, like from my actual sexual partners. They taught me things and they, the first time I ever got tested was when someone I had sex with, he took me there and he showed me what to do and he made me feel better about it. I think a lot of this, it just comes down to like, you know, how lucky were you to be exposed to this sort of stuff. So I, you know, once I dated this guy and I did him for, you know, a couple months and I was like 21 at the time. And so was he. And, you know, we just started talking one day about HIV. It came up and then he actually said to me, how do you get HIV? And I think at the time I was, I was kind of angry about to him. Like we actually got into a bit of a fight about him. Like, you know, how are you a 21 year old man and you don't know about HIV? Um, But I think now I realize that, yeah, you know, it was sort of inappropriate for me to sort of react that way to him, because really the only difference between me and him was that I was lucky enough to be sort of exposed to these sorts of different ideas and things like that, that I was able to, you know, explore, you know, and learn about how it is that you had to protect myself from stuff like that. That last response came from Alex, the online outreach coordinator at AIDS Committee Toronto, ACT for short. We'll come back to our discussion with him a little later. It's clear that our sexual education experiences are varied. In fact, as you heard at the beginning of the episode, there's a lack of consistency between provinces in Canada on what should be taught and when. In British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, and Quebec, children are taught the proper names for body parts in kindergarten, while children in New Brunswick aren't taught this until grade 6. Sexual orientation is taught in Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia in grade 3, but in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's taught in grade nine. And Ontario? Well, we recently had an overhaul of a sexual education curriculum that hadn't been changed since 1998. The 2015 Ontario sex ed curriculum sparked so much political controversy, our new administration has decided to dispense with it altogether and revert back to the old curriculum. Maria caught up with Laura Brown. 
a teacher in the Toronto District School Board, to learn more about both curriculums, her experience teaching sexual education, and her thoughts about how we're doing in Ontario. So as we know, there was a shift from the old sex ed curriculum, which was basically last updated in the 90s, to the 2015 curriculum, the new sex ed curriculum that got a lot of attention from the media. And now there's a shift back with the new government to the old curriculum again. So currently, we are still teaching the new curriculum in the Toronto District School Board. Starting next September, we will roll back to the old curriculum. Basically, the new curriculum talks more about, it places a larger emphasis on mental health. It places a larger emphasis on dispelling any sexual myths that the students may have. And just basically creating open lines of communication between parents and students, teachers and students, things like that. Things that the old curriculum never touched upon. For example, the old curriculum focused more on abstinence and um, kind of just a don't do it kind of mentality that the kids had to follow but clearly weren't following where the new curriculum is kind of in a response to the old curriculum because it's placing more of an emphasis on, okay, well, we know you're going to do it, but these are the ways that you can prevent pregnancy or these are the ways to treat STIs and these are the ways that you can protect yourself. Okay, so this new curriculum places a huge emphasis on debunking quote-unquote sex myths among students so that they're equipped with sufficient knowledge to protect themselves. The curriculum also promotes building students' mental health and general well-being. Laura explains that in the 2015 curriculum, this is done by encouraging pathways of open communication. It places more of an emphasis on creating healthy communication pathways between you and a partner, you and your friends, um, you and your parents, you and a teacher. So it it allows students to feel more comfortable in opening up to other people um, about anything they feel uncomfortable about or maybe things that they're experiencing within a relationship that they're confused about or that they're uncomfortable with and they don't really know who else to go to. So it's kind of creating those pathways where they can feel more comfortable talking to people close to them rather than just asking friends or focusing on, you know, well, I don't know who else to ask, so maybe I'll have to ask my partner. Kids get information from a lot of sources, whether it's online, on social media, porn, or from their peers. And as we heard from our Word on the Street guests, sometimes that information leads to a lot of misconceptions. You can only get pregnant when you have your period. Laura explains that the 2015 Ontario curriculum mandates teachers to address misconceptions, whether it's by having a question jar where students can submit their questions anonymously or having an open dialogue initiated by the teacher on topics they've heard students discussing. She's concerned for the next school year, though. Come September 2019, teachers are no longer required to engage in these types of discussions. In fact, they're not even allowed to teach from the 2015 curriculum. A lot of teachers that I know are are super upset at that. The fact that we're reverting, it feels like we took two steps forward and one step back because, you know, we have this great piece of curriculum that we are, you know, having open discussions and we're talking about things like mental health and things that we were never talked about in the old curriculum. And now all of a sudden, you know, are we just supposed to pretend like we didn't have those conversations with our kids? Right. So perhaps we're having conversations with the grade six and next year they're in grade seven and now we're not having any of those conversations and they're going to have questions and they're going to ask us. And what are we supposed to say? Are we supposed to answer honestly or are we supposed to answer in the way that's not going to have us lose our jobs and go back to the old curriculum? 
It's definitely, definitely a sticky situation to be a health teacher going into the 2019 year because you want your kids to have the knowledge and the information that they need to make their own choices. But it's hard when your job is literally at stake. And I do know that there's a website that if parents find out that you're teaching the new curriculum come September, they can submit the teacher's name and it goes right to Doug Ford. So It's like, do you continue to be honest and truthful to the children and the students about these questions that they have? Or do you want to protect your own job and you revert back to the old curriculum? It's very, very tricky, definitely. While Laura had a lot of great things to say about this new curriculum, we asked her what she thought could be improved in both curriculums. Personally, I think that there could be more emphasis on gay, lesbian, bisexual, asexual relationships and what does that mean and what kind of what kind of life and what kind of struggles those people may go through. It is talked about like the children and the students know what it means to be gay and what it means to be lesbian, but the conversation ends up stopping there. It doesn't continue forward. It doesn't continue on to, you know, what kind of struggles they may face in society in general because it's still for some people they still can't tolerate it they can't accept it so I think having those kind of conversations can really start opening up you know young minds and thinking that we need to not only tolerate but also accept and show acceptance because it's truly not enough to tolerate anymore and I think just having the conversation stop at this is what it means to be gay it's just not enough for 2019. If you were asking me to design a course for students, I probably would design a course that was a lot like the one I teach undergraduates. I oh, mean, nice. I think I would I think I would try to get them to know something about sexual differentiation, what's known about development, let them see that there's a a spectrum and potentially even, you know, show them a couple of experiments and try to get them to think about whether the paradigm for the experiment is a reasonable paradigm. Recognize that voice? If not, go back to episode number 31, Sex, Gender, and the Brain. It's a good one, we promise. We brought back neuroscientist Dr. Jillian Einstein to join in the discussion this episode. Pretty much anybody at any age can understand a scientific experiment and and can be a judge. And I would view it as an opportunity, you know, to increase science literacy. So I think I put it in a bigger picture than just this what, is the it, anatomy. Usually, what yeah. it usually is about. Sure, yeah. Do you do you happen to know what do you remember what you were taught about sex ed when you were in school? Well, I mean it's really laughable. I'm not sure I ever had sex ed. I know. <laughs> I think you know, you're talking to somebody who went to school a long time ago. I remember a video about menstruation, which you can find on the web called Very Personally Yours, which is made by the people who manufacture Tampax and Kotex, if they still exist, I don't know. And actually it's a cartoon. It's wonderful. I mean, it's beautifully done, but it's hilarious. It really is. The video Dr. Einstein is referring to was produced in 1946 by Disney and co-presented with Kotex. It's called The Story of Menstruation and was circulated with a pamphlet called Very Personally Yours. We've linked it in the episode description in case you're interested, although I don't think they're still showing it in schools anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever got any sex education. I know we never were taught anything about anything other than heterosexuality. That was just the assumption. I mean, I go back and forth about this stuff. You know, what gets downloaded, outsourced to the state to do, and what should be happening in people's homes? I think there are learning opportunities all the time in an open home. My biggest conflict is 
why should you we shouldn't be outsourcing these things to the government on the other hand i can see the argument that there might be some families in which it's never discussed or there might be some families that discuss it in a way that might not lead to great citizenship and citizenship is a really important thing as well it's that idea of good citizenship that laura was getting at as well she reflects on one teaching placement at a school where the children came from a high socioeconomic background The parents were actively involved with the school, and as a result, when sexual education was being taught, Laura found that certain topics became optional. The discussion was going to be about different types of families. So we were talking about lesbian families and gay families and nuclear families and extended families. The school advised me that I had to send permission forms home to the parents to get written permission that the kids could be in the class to listen to the conversation we were about to have. I thought it was very odd because it's in the curriculum and every student should know that there are different types of families in the world. And most of the parents agreed and said that their kids could listen and engage in the conversation. But I had a few parents who said, no, I don't want my child there for that conversation. So about three children were removed from the class during that day. Um, And they were sent to a different room while we had the conversation. I thought it was quite interesting because it was sending a message to the other children that the topic we were talking about was very taboo and that it was an optional thing. Clearly, things like math or literacy are not optional. So I think it's interesting that health becomes now an optional conversation to have, especially in terms of anything other than a man and a woman family. And that's where opinions diverge. Should health and related topics like sexual identity be considered just as important and mandatory as math and science? We'll come back to this idea a little later. In the meantime, let's switch gears. While a sexual education curriculum can have many goals, one of them is arguably to emotionally prepare and equip young individuals to navigate relationships and manage their own sexual health. We shared some common misconceptions people had about sex earlier in the episode. We asked those same people what constitutes a happy sex life for them. I feel like this is so cliche and I feel like a lot of people are going to say this, but I honestly think communication and basically just vocalizing what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, your likes and dislikes, setting limits and expectations on what you guys both would like. I think it's a combination of two things. First of all, frequency. So I think maybe once or twice a week. Um, And then secondly, it's more just equal desire on, on both ends. So not the same person initiating it all the time. I think in all things, knowledge is power. So I think the more you know about yourself and the more you know about your partner, if it's partnered sex, which you get through communicating and being not too embarrassed to talk about it or ask what you want. I think that's just, if you don't know better, you can't do better. So the more you know, I think the, the better you do. Good sex life is able to be, you know, being able to be open about what it is that you want and being empowered or feeling empowered enough that you're able to ask for those types of things. So a happy sex life means different things to different people. To find out what research says about having a happy sex life, we went to a literal expert. Bonnie chatted with Dr. Jessica Maxwell, who completed her PhD at the University of Toronto studying, well, the psychology of relationships and sex. Hands up if you didn't realize that was something you could actually study. I'm curious about what the most surprising thing that you've learned about behavioral patterns surrounding sex from your research. Um, from my research, yeah, that's a great thing. The, there is so many surprising findings, but one of the sort of overarching things that I would say is that 
people aren't having as wild sex as we think, or as some people might think. Okay. Um, so I think, I think as a society, we sort of have this perception that the grass is greener, that everybody is having tons of really hot sex, um, but that's not always what we find in research. Um, so again, there's some cool research that came out of UTM, like U of T Mississauga, that found that most couples on average have sex about once a week. And so that is kind of surprising to some people. And um, what's more surprising is that having sex once a week for people in relationships is the rate that maximizes your, your happiness or life satisfaction. So it's not that the frequency of sex has like a linear effect on your happiness. It's not like more is always better. Right. It does like sort of meeting just a once a week threshold is enough to keep you uh, quite satisfied in your life. And so I think that does sort of surprise people sometimes because I think some people think like, well, more sex must be better, right? But it doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And so I always like to tell people that finding because I think it sort of sometimes reassures them that like you don't need to be having sex multiple times a week in order to, to be happy. Right. And I guess if you're having sex once a week with your partner, would you consider that, I guess, from a scientific standpoint, a happy sex life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems to be what's bearing out in the research that most people, I mean, of course, there's going to be individual differences. I'm sure for some people, they would be unsatisfied with once a week. But by and large, the people who are having sex once a week tend to be quite relationally satisfied and, and satisfied with their life overall. What sort of factors stand out to you from couples that have a, a happy sex life? Like, what are they doing that makes it so great? So um, there's some really cool research out of the University of Ottawa that talks about optimal sexuality, um, where they've actually looked at people who self-identify as having really great sex and sort of interviewed them about like what makes for great sex and what, why are these people special? And one of the things, um, I forget all of the exact things that come out of it, but one of the main themes is feeling authentic and feeling safe. So just like, I think just having a secure relationship is a main factor for having a happy sex life and just, yeah, be feeling free to like express yourself. Um, but there's a lot of other research too about little things that can make your sex life happier. So my dissertation that I did at U of T, what I found was that your beliefs about sex can actually have a huge implication for how happy your sex life ultimately is. So what I found is that if you believe that sex takes effort and work, mm -hmm. you're more likely to have a happy sex life than, for example, if you believe more of this idea that it's all about having a soulmate or having like natural sexual chemistry with someone. Um, so having maybe more of this pragmatic view about sex, it kind of sounds unsexy to say that your sex life takes effort and work, but I found that that's one of the factors that can actually help you have a happy sex life, even if you are a new parent and aren't sleeping and things like that. Um, yeah. Your beliefs about sex can really matter. Another thing that's sort of related um, is that there is some research that suggests that being a responsive sexual partner is really important to have a happy sex life for both couple members. So what I mean by that is just if you think that your partner is willing to meet your sexual needs, that makes you feel happy. So if you feel like, you know, they'll they'll make compromises with you, maybe they'll do things like, you know, have sex at the time of day that you prefer or little things like that to show you that they're um, listening to your sexual needs. That's really important for couples to have a happy sex life and a ha happy relationship overall. I think one of the, the main things is just 
trying to be as open, as honest as you possibly can, which I know is very, very hard because sex makes us feel so vulnerable. But I think it's really important that we have these types of conversations with our partner, because if we think about it, like I just said, how it's important that our partner responds to our sexual needs. But how can our partner respond to our sexual needs if we're not actually going to tell them what we what we want or what we need? Um, Right. Like it's kind of like, I don't know how to read your mind. How am I supposed to know? Exactly. And um, I even did a study at U of T um, about that. Um, And what I did was have undergrad couples rate how much they enjoyed a wide variety of sexual activities and then had their partner rate how much they thought they enjoyed them. So I kind of compared like how accurate are partners about knowing each other's sexual likes and dislikes. And I found that people were pretty good at knowing, which is a positive thing. But what I thought was really interesting was uh, that people overestimated how much their partner wanted to do adventurous type activities like acting out fantasies or sort of like Fifty Shades of Grey type ideas. So that, I thought that was kind of intric- interesting because to me what that suggests is, again, maybe we think people are wilder than they truly are, but also it means that we might be sort of imbuing cultural stereotypes on our partner instead of actually asking them what they like and dislike. Now I want to get an idea of how you define sexual health. Like what types of things encompass sexual health that people wouldn't necessarily think about. So straying away from just STIs and contraception, what are your thoughts? Right. Um, Well, what I think is actually interesting, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, you know what, when we talk about sexual health, people automatically have like visions back to probably high school, like the school nurse and STIs. But what's really interesting is that there's been a movement towards thinking about it more comprehensively and more in a positive sort of pleasure-based way. Um, So the World Health Organization actually defines sexual health as physical, mental, and social well-being regarding sexuality. And I think that's so great because it's focusing also on that mental and social aspect. So it's it's not just feeling safe and secure and, and free of disease. It's also about feeling good about your sex life and and feeling supported. And so I think for me, um, when I think of sexual health, I think of just sort of being comfortable and happy expressing one's sexuality. And I think that can look very different for different people, right? So I think getting back to this idea of authenticity, I think if you're being authentic and feel free to be open about your sexual interests, I think that's one important aspect of sexual health as well. Right. And for people who maybe either themselves or their partner are expressing sort of unhealthy behaviors in regards to sexual health. How would you recommend mediating that? Yeah, such a tricky question too, because I think, you know, we struggle in relationships generally with communication. And then I think anytime we're talking about sex, it's just compounded by social taboos and people feeling super vulnerable. And so I think with with sexuality, um, we do need to tread lightly in our conversations, be a bit more cautious. So I think if someone's expressing unhealthy sexual behaviors, I mean, I think it sort of depends on what that looks like, but I think it's just really important to call them out on it, talk openly about why you feel uncomfortable with that. I think some people are really scared to do that and they're scared to express their own needs, but I think that's extremely important. Exactly. And I think that gets especially important. You know, there's a lot of great literature from the public health perspective as well on like condom negotiation and how 
that's really important in relationships. And I think one of the things that some of this does boil down to as well is having a sense of um, what we call like sexual self-esteem or sexual um, assertiveness. And so you, you know, if you, you need to be really confident in yourself in order for you to be able to, to tell a partner that you insist on condom use. And so I think it's, it's always really important to try to boost people's self-esteem and just remind them too that they don't have to be in any sort of unhealthy or unsafe situation. And, exactly. and um, yeah, cause I think there's a lot of people who, you know, they're worried about their, their, I mean, there's lots of research on this too. If you're worried about your partner rejecting you, you're not going to feel comfortable asserting your own needs. And I think it's really important for sexuality that if they're not going to listen to your needs, like it's not worth it having that sexual experience because it's not going to be positive or not be sexually healthy. Like we talked about, like, you know, you have to feel authentic and safe and supported. Okay. So Jessica and Bonnie spent a lot of time talking about sexual health in the context of relationships, but we didn't forget about those of you flying solo. In fact, much of Jessica's current work focuses on the well-being and satisfaction of those having sex outside of relationships. Her results? Well, it turns out it doesn't really matter whether you're in a relationship or not. Sexual experiences can be positive as long as you're being authentic and having sex for the right reasons. The reason I was fascinated by this is that the research on casual sex is like the most mixed that you could imagine, right? Like there's studies showing casual sex is awful for your mental and physical health. And there's other studies showing casual sex is great for your sexual health, like for your health and well-being. And so what researchers are now sort of delving into more is like, for whom is casual sex good and bad and what makes for positive casual sex experiences. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like a lot of it boils down to the same kind of thing, just feeling safe and supported. So, and authentic. So if you're having casual sex because you really want to do it and you want to feel good and you're really aroused and you know, that's something you want to do, then that, then it tends to be a positive experience. But if you're having casual sex because you feel pressured to, or because you know, you think it'll like maybe make you feel sexier or something like that, um, then you're sometimes at risk of having, feeling a bit more regret afterwards. So I think really the reasons why you're having casual sex and the type of relationship you have with your partner are, are really important. So in some of my research, I've been finding that friends with benefits relationships or sort of sex buddy relationships where you're having sexual encounters with the same person repeatedly, that those can be satisfying, especially if you're someone um, who is more secure in yourself and your relationships. And so I think what's really going on there is that those type of relationships sort of do provide a degree of familiarity and and um, sometimes can provide intimacy. And so I think that that can help those experiences be satisfying for people. Looks like the same types of benefits can be derived from casual sex and relationship sex, as long as the deed is done for those positive reasons. Jessica did have a couple of words of caution, though, and they mostly boil down to protect yourself. I think with anything, when we're talking about sexual health in, in not relationship context, again, it's extra important to be careful about safe sex practices. So one of the things that really gets, I think is interesting about friends with benefits relationships is as much as they can be positive experiences, people sometimes forget that even though this person's your friend, they're often not being monogamous with you. And so it's really important to, to be having those safe sex conversations. Yeah, that's an extremely important conversation to have. And I think 
you kind of do just get caught up in the moment and forget to ask. Exactly. And because you're feeling familiar with this person, maybe you know them, maybe they're your acquaintance or they're actually your friend, you're kind of less on guard than I think you would be if you were um, having a hookup with a random. So I think those are really important situations where it's important to remember that, yes, friends with benefits can have lots of great, you know, benefits, but uh, you do have to be mindful of the fact that they're often not monogamous. And then I think in terms of just sort of your overall well-being with these casual sex experiences, one thing that we are finding as well is it's important that your expectations are calibrated. So, you know, I don't think you're going to have a positive experience if you're going into these experiences thinking that they can turn into relationships. Because although that happens sometimes, that's not always the case. So for those of you exploring friends with benefits, be sure to be crystal clear on expectations. And if you're wondering what the research says about people transitioning from friends with benefits to a full-on relationship, don't worry, we asked Jessica. The research on that, it has it's probably about five years old now, but they, they did find that in their sample, about 20% of friends with benefits turned into romantic relationships. So about one in five. Um, and if your relationship started as a friends with benefits, you um, your relationship was just the same as any other relationship. Like there wasn't any, it's not like relationships that came from friends with benefits were worse off in terms of relationship quality or communication or anything like that. So it's definitely um, possible that friends with benefits will turn into relationships. But the other, I guess the flip side is saying, you know, 80% of them do not turn into relationships. And uh, the reason I think it's important to bring that up is that when you ask people what they're looking for in a friends with benefits, you do find people endorsing that it might be a way, like they're viewing it as potentially a gateway to relationships. And that's when I think it's potentially not so good for you. So I think it's like if you go into a friends with benefits and just are aware that it's probably just a casual thing, then you can experience a lot of benefits. Uh, but if you're sort of hoping it might be a gateway to a relationship, you you might be let down and, and ultimately have like a less positive experience. Jessica's reminders to protect yourself while having casual sex are especially true in the gay community, since men having sex with men are more likely to contract HIV than those having heterosexual sex. It's part of the reason why sexually active gay men are recommended to be tested for HIV every three months. But times are changing, and a lot of that has to do with the advent of a small pill called PrEP. PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, is an antiretroviral cocktail that disrupts the virus's ability to replicate and lowers the likelihood of HIV infection. In addition to his role as online outreach coordinator at ACT, Alex is also the PrEP access coordinator. We asked him to talk about why PrEP is so revolutionary. So I definitely think revolutionary is the correct word for that. Um, So PrEP is a pill, um, uh, and basically you take this pill every single day. And as long as you take it every single day, it reduces your chances of getting HIV by 99%. Um, So at its most basic, that's what it is. And why I think it's, you know, and culturally, I think in gay culture, we're sort of having a moment right now with PrEP because it's really sort of changed how, you know, guys are feeling about their sex lives. So a lot of people, myself included, you know, we sort of grew up with sort of like the shadow of HIV sort of like over our lives. I think for a lot of people um, that AIDS panic was kind of a defining queer experience. And I think basically PrEP has sort of allowed that to not be the case anymore. I think people are sort of having the kinds of sex that they want to be having. So, you know, at ACT, we created this website called HIV Now, which was basically to help connect people to PrEP 
And for that website, I interviewed several guys and we created a series of videos. And I mean, this, why every single person, you know, chose to go on PrEP was different. But the one thing that they all had in common was they said that PrEP gave them peace of mind, right? It allowed them, it was like their insurance policy, right? It was like, you know, if a condom broke, you know, no matter what happened, they sort of knew that they were protected and sort of, and, you know, it allowed them to take their health into their own hands, basically. The concept of PrEP and the notion of casual sex relationships may be more common in today's hookup culture with apps like Tinder and Grindr, but such an open attitude to sex is a fairly recent phenomenon. The sexual revolution of the 20th century is one of the most profound examples of social change in recent history. Although the subject of sex is often still taboo, or at the very least uncomfortable to talk about, how sex is perceived in our society and the impact of this on our sexual behaviors has come a long way. Research like Jessica's could not have taken place until social attitudes towards sex, sexuality, and gender shifted. And as a society, we have evolved to become more open-minded when it comes to sexuality. In Western culture, for example, acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriage equality has increased from around 50 to 70% since the mid-1990s, which is great because research shows that there are considerable health benefits for the LGBTQ community when same-sex marriage is legalized. Social attitudes about sex clearly have and will continue to change. And we are starting to see this social shift reflected in how we do science. Both sex and gender influence the development of human health and disease. It's been increasingly clear that studying both men and women is both an ethical and scientific imperative. However, a 2010 study published in Nature found that 8 out of 10 research disciplines were biased towards using male animal models. And in some fields like neuroscience, there were nearly six times more studies that used only male animals rather than only female ones. Why is this the case? Well, including sex and gender as research variables introduces an additional layer of complexity to research study designs. Researchers may fear that including females in their experiments will increase variability that is hard to account for, like fluctuations in hormone levels, making it difficult to standardize research methods. This sex factor can also inflate the cost and timelines of running experiments. And when it comes to taking gender into research considerations, well, we don't even have a consensus on how to define and measure it. But governmental and funding agencies are finally taking note of this and other examples of gender and sex disparities in research. The World Health Organization urges the incorporation of gender into healthcare policy worldwide. In 2010, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research established policies that require health and medical researchers to include both sex and gender as critical variables in any planned studies or clinical trials. The European Commission did the same in 2013. And since 2016, grant proposals to the National Institutes of Health in the United States must include information on how sex will be incorporated as a biological variable in research studies. But it's more than just incorporating sex and gender into scientific research. In fact, scientists are still refining our definitions of sex and gender, and we're increasingly finding that our X and Y chromosomes aren't always sufficient to determine our biological identity, our sex, or our social identity, our gender. While non-binary definitions of gender have already been embraced in the social sciences, think LGBT plus vernacular, in the biological sciences, we're beginning to get hints certainly of a gender continuum and potentially even a sex continuum. 
people with disorders of sex development, or intersex individuals as they're referred to, are probably the clearest indication that some sort of male-female continuum exists. In these individuals, there's some disruption of the incredibly complicated sexual differentiation pathway, and as a result, some aspect of their biology, like their reproductive anatomy for example, doesn't fit the typical male or female mold. Remember this clip we played at the beginning of the episode? I'm not anti-sex. I'm not anti-gay. In many ways, I'm not even anti-intersex or transsexual. I barely understand those things because that's not real life. It was taken from a YouTube video critiquing Ontario's 2015 sexual education curriculum. The host selected a couple of passages of choice from the curriculum proposal and attempted to argue that the curriculum was not evidence-based, as the government at the time would have you believe, but rather part of a political agenda to sexualize children. And while I won't spend time trying to refute his logic, it's maybe an indication that we need to do a better job as scientists to translate our findings and their implications for the general public. Scientifically, we know that intersex is, in fact, quote-unquote, real life. Dr. Einstein explained this a little better. So it's interesting because I'm teaching this course called Sex and the Brain to undergraduates this semester, and we've just finished sexual differentiation. Oh, good. So you're fresh on it already. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about sexual differentiation is that in the embryo, the reproductive tissues start in both males and females, both XX, XY, X0, X. YY, every version, they all start with something called the indifferent gonad, which can go in either different, either direction. I always tell the students, it's kind of like, well, it doesn't care. It's indifferent, right? And in the, the story about sexual differentiation that most people learn is that there's uh, something that turns on testis determining factor called SRY gene, And the SRY gene turns on the development of the testes in the indifferent gonad, and it starts going toward male. And the secretion of androgens by the the testes then leads to further differentiation of the male pathway so that ultimately you get retraction of the Mullerian duct system and you get the expansion of the Wolfian ducts, you get increase in phallus size, uh, and you get the production of dihydrotestosterone, which is a sort of end-stage testosterone that leads to the full elaboration of the testes and the penis, et cetera. And women And on the female, on the XX side... The story still is pretty much that it's the absence of testosterone and the lack of development of the testes because they don't have SRY that leads to the female phenotype and the female reproductive system. And the pictures that you see are always very binary, that you've got the XY pathway, you've got the XX pathway, and there's no crossover. Right. But in fact, we know that there are like about maybe one in a thousand births of human beings that have indeterminate genitalia. Uh, That might be because of uh, a gene mutation. It might be because of an extra chromosome. It might be because SRY somehow got switched over during meiosis to an X chromosome. Uh, So an XX person ends up, you know, looking male. And they're just a bunch of these. Uh, These people would be referred to as intersex They would be referred to as intersex, yeah. And so the gradual realization 
that there are these very vari- variations that really de- to not have them depends on everything going exactly right along or right along these pathways with the probability of that being very low makes me think of both these pathways being a kind of rheostat where different stages can be accentuated sure. or changed uh, but also setting up ultimately a continuum of overlapping morphologies that I think ultimately, even if they're relatively rare, speak to the diversity of both phenotype and ultimately gender identification and sexual identification that we see in the population. Because phenotype, genotype, and hormones are not necessarily all going to go according to plan. Uh, and it's, so it's the mixing of these that, that really lead to a continuum. Now, I have a colleague, Daphna Joel, who has published a number of papers showing that the brain is actually a mosaic. So rather than a continuum of sex differences in the brain, it's actually a tiling of male and female patterns. But she sets up this argument by saying the genitalia are dimorphic, mm-hmm. and that, but the brain isn't. But I actually think the genitalia aren't. I mean, I, I kind of say to my students, you know, anybody who spends any time in a gym knows about the sort of variation of types across <laughs> people, right? So that to think that the genitalia are dimorphic to me is, you know, yeah, there are versions at either end of a continuum that are part of the story that we tell. And then I think of gender as pushing something that is not really binary to being binary. Somehow I think people have this deep-seated need to know who's male and who's female. Like we are so upset about when we don't know. There used to be this whole routine on Saturday Night Live, again, really dating me, but there was some character on Saturday Night Live that you could never tell whether they were male or female. And that was the unsettling and funny thing about it. Dr. Einstein believes that sex and sexuality both exist in a continuum, but we as a society impose binary views on them. When we looked at historical perspectives on sex and gender in both society and science, we see that they seem to have evolved together. The way we ask questions, design studies, and interpret results are all influenced by the biases we have from our experiences within society. As a result, there's not much neurobiological research supporting Dr. Einstein's hypothesis. It's mostly been focused on showing dimorphisms or, you know, they call them dimorphisms, but in the end, they're not as strong as dimorphisms. They're called differences. Uh, So it's done in the realm of gay and straight. It's done in the realm of trans. It's using this idea that male and female brains, the circuits are sexually differentiated circuits are set in place at the time of sexual differentiation, just like the genitalia are differentiated. And that's called organization. And most of the research is done trying to determine if there are organizational differences that would make in the brain. For example, the idea is that a gay brain might be more like a female brain. And I think that says volumes about what we think being gay is about, actually. Yeah which may not be accurate. And the research looking at trans feminine brains, 
you know, trying to see if they're more like female brains than male brains, et cetera, et cetera. That's really what the focus has been on. In neuroscience, researchers like to point out the differences between male and female brains. They don't talk about the huge overlap that exists between them. So this is in the neuroscience realm. So I could imagine that there'd be lots and lots of studies in the social science realm or the humanities realm where they might actually be showing a continuum of expression or feelings or stories or, but just in the neuroscience domain, I'm afraid people, with the exception of um, my colleague Daphna Joel and, and maybe me, really focused on using the paradigm of organization and activation and the binary that is implied in that paradigm. You know, I, I think we'll get to a better world. You know, I think we'll get to the point where science is questioning the paradigm a little bit better. But I think what it's going to take is it's going to, it's going to take actually questioning the whole paradigm of organization and activation and thinking about gender as shaping the very questions that we ask. One study initiated by a transgender student in Dr. Einstein's lab looked to see whether the organization and activation paradigm held up in the context of transgender brains. His thinking was that if sexual differentiation in the brain occurs simultaneously with sexual differentiation of the genitalia, and trans individuals identify as the sex that is not the sex they were born as, then those trans individuals should have some brain characteristics similar to the gender to which they identify. So trans men should have brains similar to cis men, even before hormone replacement therapy, and likewise for trans women and cis women. There are a couple of tasks that are cognitive tasks that are more female. Females are better at them than males on the average, and males are better than that. And the big one is mental rotation. So being able to rotate these figures that are drawn in three dimensions on a piece of paper and, you know, seeing it one way and then matching up three others with it when they're rotated slightly different, you know, find the one that matches when it's rotated slightly differently. So we gave that task and then we gave a, a verbal task. And it's not that this task, the verbal task is better in females than in males, but in females, the ability changes uh, with the menstrual cycle and uh, also is affected. It's, I mean, the big deal is that it's affected by, by estrogen depletion. So we gave these two tasks to trans men before hormone therapy, trans men after, cis men and cis women, and the cis women and the trans men before hormone therapy, we tested in the mid-luteal stage and the follicular stage of the menstrual cycle. And what we found most surprisingly, actually, was that it's not that women don't do as well on the mental rotation task as men. It's that, at least in our hands, anybody with a menstrual cycle does worse when estrogens are high and better and perform like cis men when estrogens are low. So the studies just hadn't taken the hormonal component into account. So they would have examined all women at whatever time in their um, menstrual They just cycle. put them all in a study. They, yeah. Yeah. So some would have been significant outliers. Right. And, and they put all the, even if they studied trans men before hormone replacement, they didn't separate them by menstrual cycle phase. I mean, to me, the most important thing about that is not that trans men's brains or, you know, at least on this task or more like cis men's brains, but that the whole paradigm of organization and, and activation 
may not be a great paradigm. Okay, so the idea that trans men before hormone replacement therapy might have similar brain organization to cis men didn't hold up in Dr. Einstein's study. And her main point here is that while it may be convenient, we can't just lump brains into male and female bins. The circuit for doing that mental rotation task exists in both males and females. It's just whether or not it's activated. Dr. Einstein works with another group that helps to shed light on the direct impacts societal norms have on our biology. It's a group of Somali Canadian women who have undergone a process called female genital cutting. And while a large part of her work is focused on chronic pain in these women, Dr. Einstein is also interested in their lived experiences for other reasons. The tradition of female genital cutting comes out of a gender norm that women must look different than men. And that if you don't cut the clitoris in women, then the clitoris will keep growing and it'll look like a penis. And there won't be any difference between males and females. Mm -hmm. And the circumcision of men is supposed to take away from the men what is female, which is the foreskin. So the men get off a lot lighter on this one. But the drive is the same thing, which is to differentiate male from female. And the anthropological literature suggests that the view is that males and females are born the same. They look equivalent when they're born. And so you have to do this to make sex. Mm-hmm. Just like we have to do stuff, I mean, have to, I say that in parentheses, uh, or in quotation marks. Society expects us to. Yeah, yeah we have to do gender, gender surgery in order to make sex in kids of indeterminate sex. I mean, that's being changed now, but that used to be the thinking. So I'm interested in female genital cutting from that perspective, but I'm also really interested, you know, and, and also I really care about the women, actually, but, um, but I'm also interested in it from the perspective of women's sexualities because a lot of the women who've had their clitoris, external portion of their clitoris removed and their labia cut and sewn together, they still say they have orgasm. And there's pretty good indication that they do. Wow. And so we in the West are very focused on the external portion of the clitoris as the site of orgasm. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> I don't think that's bad. But I do think we do that because we're too focused on drawing a parallel between male sexuality and female sexuality. I think there's going to be a continuum again and that female sexuality may be a lot more complicated. I mean, you have if you don't mind my saying so, you have women reporting orgasm from touching their breasts or touching other parts of their body. You don't usually hear males reporting orgasm from touching any part of their body. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe males could be trained that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a limitation. Maybe on, we had to get more inventive. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I just think actually that they can teach us something. Yeah, yeah. That we don't have opportunities to know. It's clear that we still have a lot to learn about sex, sexuality, and gender. Dr. Einstein, who also chairs the board of the Institute of Gender and Health, says that one of the emerging goals of the Institute is to encourage a whole new science that brings the social together with the biological. We hope that whether or not you're a scientist, you've taken something away from this episode. Whether it's a deeper understanding of biological identity and the impact social identity has on us, or maybe just some good old-fashioned dating tips. Thank you to our guests, Laura Brown, Jessica Maxwell, Jillian Einstein, Alex Arkart, and all our friends who contributed their knowledge, thoughts, and experiences. 
Content development and interviews were conducted by Maria, Bonnie, Anton, and Kat, who also did our audio engineering. We'd love to hear what you learned from or thought of this episode. Send us a voice note or tweet us at Raw Talk Podcast. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.